pitch explodes. What was your mindset when you stepped in the batter's box? Go yard. I mean, <laughs> I'm a pitcher. Why not swing as hard as I can? He was so worked up, he vomited on the sideline and then just kept on yelling at his teammates, Steve. Coach, <laughs> Minshew mania, the mustache sensation has taken over. Well, I don't know. I don't even think he had a mustache when I recruited him. I don't recall. Becoming a sideline reporter for ESPN didn't make me popular. This thing did. I've been getting offers for it all day long. All right, guys, here we go. We're going to have one team, one heartbeat. All right, now we're going to play for each other. We're going to have each other's back. We're going to win this ball game. One team, one heartbeat. Here we go. go. That might be the best sideline report in the history of sideline reports. Welcome into the Sideline Pass podcast. Allison, Chris, and Molly with you as always. We actually have a very special guest coming up a little bit later on the show. Cole Kubliak will join us. Uh, he is the SEC Network analyst and reporter on the SEC Network Prime game every week and probably had the most talked about game of the weekend, that Ole Miss-Tennessee game. Uh, so we'll get into some trash talking with Cole in a little bit. Really looking forward to hearing from him. Uh, but first, ladies, let's kind of talk about your weekends. Um, Chris, you were with your boys in Cincinnati, Molly, you had a Florida LSU. And I want to start there because one of the biggest headlines this week is Ed Ogeron separating, if you will, from LSU. Apparently they were in talks going into that Florida game. And I thought you handled that post game so well, kind of delicately asking him what that win could mean for his future, which we knew was potentially in jeopardy um, at LSU. Just kind of take me through the the lead up to that game, the conversation conversations with Ogeron and um, your reaction to how it all ultimately played out. Yeah, it's always a difficult week when you know that a coach is not just on a hot seat, but that his job is in jeopardy and that at any day he could be losing his job, right? So you go into the week um, not knowing how testy or sensitive they'll be early in the week. Ed Orgeron spoke with local media and kind of snapped at a local reporter who asked him a simple question. Hey, how are you doing? And he said, are you just trying to get another quote out of me? And now that we know what we know, he had conversations with their athletic director, Scott Woodward, right after the loss to Kentucky uh, about his job status and him not returning. So those questions in the media kind of um, digging into it were probably happening at the same time that those talks were happening. So he was maybe a little more sensitive. And then the Ed Orgeron that we met with on the Friday, so the day before the game, was a little more relaxed. I think he was someone, looking at it now, like hindsight's twenty twenty. looking at it now, he was someone who seemingly resigned himself to his fate. And honestly, he kind of seemed like a guy who knew he was going to get a lot of money with the buyout, making close to $17 million. So he was very loose and happy mm -hmm. and easygoing. Mm -hmm. And I even said to people after the meeting, because that was my first time sitting down with him in person, I said to everyone, is he normally like that? Because I expected his energy to be low, but his energy was very high and he was very positive when we met with him. And everyone said, yeah, he's always like that. So he seemed pretty much like himself. And I found him to be very um, amenable to the questions that I asked him. Like I had to do a pregame interview with him for college game day <clears throat> about his job security and his job status. And the question that I asked him because he was testy during the week and you want to get him there to talk about his job without asking about it outright. I said, how, you know, with all the adversity that you guys are going through this season beyond just today, can you just like describe to me the expectations here at LSU? 
And he said, you know, the expectations are a national championship, nothing less. And we haven't met those expectations. So he kind of admitted that they've fallen short. And then they go on in this game without, you know, two All-American cornerbacks, without their star wide receiver. People were dropping like flies, not even just throughout the season, but that week alone, they lost a couple starters to season-ending injuries and guys were getting surgery. So you would think that LSU would lose this game and you would understand if they lost this game and they just fought, they had this fight in them. And players I spoke with during the week were like, we are not giving up. Like we're playing for pride at this point and playing for ourselves. And I know guys are trying to get stuff on tape for their NFL careers because they're looking beyond LSU. So they win that game. And an interesting thing that Dan Mullen said to us is he said, you know, the SEC is so unforgiving. If I lose this game, I'm on the hot seat. Like everyone says Ed Orgeron. Yeah. yeah, everyone said Ed Orgeron's on the hot seat. If we lose, we're on the hot seat. That's just the way that that the SEC is. I mean, what is it? It was 17 games after winning a national championship and he loses his job. And it's after a win. 21 months. And it's just is that wild. quicker than Gene Chizik? It's about the same, same. timeline. It's the same timeline. I think for Chizik he went nine and seven or something like that after winning it, but everyone was comparing, comparing it to, yeah, to it was like two situation. full seasons. Right. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy how quick. It's interesting though. If you go and you delve into some of the reports about what was happening outside the football offices into his personal life, there seemed to be a, uh, the LSU felt that there was a shift in focus of, um, you know, the priorities changed for, you know, that he spent a lot more time on his personal life uh, instead of the football field. Uh, and so I, it, there had, I think that that is why the rumbling started so early in the season and the leash felt really short. Yeah. What do you mean? What, what do you guys mean by that? Like him and his the, wife got the divorced. Athletic article yeah. Too. Him and his wife got divorced six weeks after the national championship. And there was uh, many reports in the athletic, um, in sports illustrated of him being seen with women around town hitting, there was in the athletic report, a story about how he hit on, um, a pregnant woman at the gas station. And she was the wife of someone in the LSU athletic department and bringing women to the football offices. Plus, I mean, they were, they were already under NCAA investigation and there was all this other stuff that happened um, that the school was looking into. And so you add all of that with not winning. And it was kind of the, the writing felt in my opinion, like the writing was on the wall. Yeah. I think that the, the reason why he lost this job was off the field things, honestly. And I think that, them announcing the fact that they weren't going to have Ed Ogeron as the head coach moving forward. They announced it after a win tells you that it doesn't have much to do with what's going on on the field. Right. Um, it has to do with mismanagement of coaching hires of his offensive and defensive coordinators last year that then were fired. And now they have new people this year. So it's mismanagement of coaching hires, mismanagement of title nine investigations, mismanagement of uh, social justice issues and things going on with his team during 2020 when all of that was at the forefront. Uh, and then obviously some personal issues and things that really rubbed the athletics department the wrong way in terms of his reputation in the local area. And I think that really, really uh, graded on them. So 
Did you get a sense, Molly, talking to players during the week, how they felt about it? Like, did they win because they wanted to play for this guy or they, what was your dealings with the players and how they felt about it? I think they wanted to win for um, the reputation and the pride of LSU for their futures, uh, for their careers and people were, you know, counting them out. And so they had this fight to them and, and it was a really fun sideline to witness. Like these guys were positive and upbeat and fighting and egging each other on. And these are guys that are kind of overcoming everything else going around them. So I felt it was more, um, because the thing that really turned the tide for the team this week or last week was a players only meeting. It was player led players only, no coaches were there. And that is what got this team ready to go in to beat Florida. So I think it's like a player led culture at this point, because they probably resigned themselves to the fact that coach Ogeron you know, wasn't going to last there very long. And one thing that I thought was really interesting is leading up to the game and before the game, I heard from a couple different people, um, you know, off the record reports that coach Orgeron was negotiating his buyout with Scott Woodward and that he knew he wouldn't be back. And that was something that gave me context for how to cover the game and how to cover coach O, but I couldn't trust it because it, it wasn't verified. Um, it was just hearsay at that point. And so, you know, hindsight's 2020, I'm looking back at the post-game interview that you referenced Allison in terms of asking him, I th- at first I asked him about the fight in his team. I knew I only had two questions because we're going to the next game. So I said, okay, two questions. I'm going big picture here. No one cares about this game. No one cares that they just beat Florida other than the fact that his team kept fighting. So I asked about the fight in the team. The second question I asked was, um, the statement that was made to administration and to fans, because those are the people who are most upset with the job that Ed Orgeron has done. And looking back now, knowing what I know and knowing that I had heard rumblings that he already knew he was out, part of me wanted to be able to follow up with the third question about his job status. But I just think that would have been kind of in poor taste in that moment. He wouldn't have said anything and he wouldn't have said anything, but it's one of those things you wonder, you wonder if you could get someone there, but I just don't think it was appropriate at the time. Yeah, I agree. I thought you handled it well. You addressed it. He answered it and you move on those situations. I think we have to be more sensitive. It's not a press room with, you know, 20 reporters, 20 minutes after the game and things have calmed down and you can push someone to like really reveal those moments are they're special for coaches. They're special for players. Um, and I think you had, there's like a, a delicate balance between getting the information the viewer deserves and being respectful yeah. of, of kind of the sanctity, if you will, at those moments. Um, but a great game. I mean, what a, what a, just a really entertaining game to watch. Chris, I'm sorry, your game wasn't quite as entertaining <laughs> <laughs> uh, with the UCF and Cincinnati. I know you're like all in on the Bearcats. And um, I'm just curious after now covering them this year, like what did you learn about this team that maybe you didn't know going into the week? Just how good their defense is. I mean, they're, they are fierce, almost violent on de- on defense, the way that they tackle. I mean, there is not like sometimes you watch a defense and it's like trying to get an arm around and there's a missed tackle. I mean, it is every single play trying to pick someone up off the ground and lay them on their back. And then just the culture around that team, which I've known for a long time, but it is just a 
head down, let's grind. You know, before the season, Luke Fickle does like the NFL, like a preseason camp. They go to Camp mm-hmm. Higher Ground. They spend two and a half to three weeks there. They build that culture. And you see that from top to bottom in that program. It is much like a family. And I know culture gets thrown around a lot, but you see that in everyone there. I mean, offense goes and scores a play and Sauce Gardner is the first one out on the field. Defense makes a big play and Desmond Ritter is the first one out there on the field. Uh, And so I just, you know, I love this team. I'll tell you one thing that I thought was super interesting. So it's only maybe my second or third time at Nippert. It's because it's in the middle of campus and it's built down into this Levine is completely open the day before a game. So yeah, I saw that on your Instagram. Yeah. There's just people having lunch, like studying, Mm -hmm. reading a book in the stands of now the number two team in the country. And what the other thing that I took away from that game is the, that Luke Fickle has done a really good job of celebrating where they are in the rankings And also knowing they have a lot of work ahead of them because he's right. It's big for their program. It's big for recruiting. It's big for the future of the program. They don't have an indoor football stadium. They're raising money to try and build one. They're eventually going to join the big 12, Like you have to embrace it. And how do you do that without losing sight of the end? I think the one thing they need to do, they keep needing to play full four quarters because we saw them start to slowly kind of lose focus at the end of Saturday's game. And I'm not quite sure that even if they went out, they still get in. Really? What makes you say that? I mean, they're, you know, if Alabama beats Georgia in the SEC championship then, and, and records stay the same, let's say Georgia's undefeated going into that, Alabama only has the one loss. I don't think you're going to keep a one-loss Alabama SEC champion out. Uh, so then also Georgia goes in. Let's say Oklahoma goes undefeated and they're playing yeah, phenomenal four. right now. Okay, but then what if Iowa goes and wins the Big 12 or Penn State? They goes just got whooped out? at home. I was, they're out. I'm sorry. Like, I mean, their strength a, a loss of, like yeah. that. I, I just don't think, again, I, we kind of got into this last week. Um, I, I really don't think it's with that Iowa loss. That was huge. First of all, because I think Luke Fickle can use that <laughs> for his team as like, a, Hey, this is what happens when you don't keep your head on straight. You can get absolutely whooped at home by a lesser team. Um, but I just feel like the big 10 the big 10 to me is the kind of like linchpin in all of this. I think that you're right. Like that's the one that could disrupt this for Cincinnati, but being at two here in the middle of October, if they went out, how do you keep dropping them? If they keep winning, I, I can't yeah. see them dropping I mean, three yeah. spots. I agree. But Allison, like, you know, you've sat in that mock selection committee. Let's say like they, let's say, Oh, you continues to play well. And let's say Alabama beats Georgia SEC championship, that final thing, they put three on the board at a time. Mm -hmm. So they would put Georgia, Alabama, Oklahoma, probably one, two, three. And then they put three resumes on the board for number four. And let's say they put an Oregon in and a Penn state and a Cincinnati. They rely so heavily on strength of schedule. And the only other ranked opponent that Cincinnati has is SMU. And so, you know, I, I believe that they look like a top four team in the country. I don't think that you can keep an undefeated team that has done everything that they can. They scheduled that Notre Dame game two years ago. Right. So that they could, Mm -hmm. you know, and 
it stinks that Indiana isn't as good as that, that win as we thought that they were, but just having done the mock selection, like I can see them keeping them out. I think with their schedule, they just have to be, they have to be as dominant as possible in all of their That's ways. Like they say. need, yep. they need to blow everyone out. And then the committee will then fall back on the age old excuse of eye test, right? Mm-hmm. Like eye test is telling us this team is really good and that they're along the same lines as a Georgia, as an Oklahoma, things like that. But I do agree with you, Allison, the big 10 is the big question mark in all of this, right? Because everyone wants to say that oh, I still believe in Ohio State. I still think Ohio State's the best team. You have Michigan who's undefeated. You have Michigan State who's undefeated. Those teams are going to play each other soon. So that's going to be a huge test. And the fact that, you know, Michigan and Ohio State are going to play at the end of November will tell us. But I mean, if a team like Michigan continues to win out, if they go undefeated and beat Ohio State, they're in. If you You have an undefeated Big Ten champion, that's going to make things really difficult, right? Huge. Absolutely. Yeah, I see how that could disrupt things, but I think it goes back to your point, Chris, that they have to play for four quarters and get style points. This is not about wins and losses for them from here on out. That's an obvious. They have to win and they have to win big. And the one thing that that I... I felt at least when I did the selection committee is as much as you try to separate last year from this year and it's a new season and all those things, this, the season I had was um, the year after Florida state won the national championship. And it was really hard for me to keep a defending national champion. I think they had like one loss out of get the scenario now, but it, like that played into my, my mindset. It did. And they're humans in there. Yeah. So as much as they rely on analytics and the stats and, and the numbers, knowing what Cincinnati did last year, that matters. I really think that that does have an influence on the human component of all of this. Um, bottom line though, they can't be talking about that shit. Like we can Luke yeah. Fickle, you got to keep that out, go out, win, win big. And I think they're really, I, I really, really think they will get in obviously keeping, I don't know. I don't think Oklahoma's going to win out. I just think they're like, teetering on the edge guys something about that whole situation at Oklahoma I just feel like as they usually do there's going to be a slip up here or there and maybe Cincinnati gets a little help and and we'll see I feel like we're all pulling for the Bearcats so don't you want that like just that that group of five team especially with all the realignment coming and the potential playoff expansion I would really like for just one year for a group of five team to kind of get in and, and show they can do it. Um, let's spin it forward to this week though, before we get to Cole, um, Molly, you have Clemson at Pitt, Chris, Illinois at Penn state, Molly, what are you most looking forward to this week? I think it's going to be really interesting to see Clemson is on the road as an underdog in the ACC for the first time (laughs) in the past decade. That is wild. It's kind of a changing of the guard in the ACC. ACC is like upside down right now because of that. So it'll be really interesting to see just the vibe among this Clemson team. I'm, I'm most interested to talk big picture in terms of like what is going wrong this year um, to talk to some team leaders about that. And then for Pitt, Kenny Pickett is arguably the best quarterback in the country right now, if not one of the best quarterbacks in the country. Are you going to turn so on, be- on Corral? I, uh, I, I said one of, but the Pickett <laughs> is, is one of those guys who's really benefiting from that COVID year. They have 13 COVID seniors or fifth, sixth. They even have a couple seventh year seniors. So this is a really old uh, mature like BYU pit, tre- pit team. Exactly. Yeah. There's like 30 year olds on these teams. So um, I think, I think this is the time, like the timing is right for Pitt to be able to 
make a stand in the ACC, what better year than now? They won't, it's not, they're not always going to have this kind of opportunity. So I think it would make a big statement for them to beat Clemson, even, even though it's at home this week, we'll see if they can do it. But I think it'll be a really competitive game. Last time I checked the line is just three points. Like Pitt is favored by three points. So we could have another good game on our hands this week. I'm really excited about that one. Chris, you're headed to Happy Valley for the first time. Um, Do you know what ice cream flavor you're going to get? Like, what are we most excited about with State College? It's a really, it's a cool, cool place. I'm just excited to see the atmosphere. You know, you've watched it on TV so many times, and I hope that it is as, you know, packed and raucous for a game that uh, the spread for mine is 17 points. So uh, they're playing an Illinois team that is banged up, don't know who's going to start a quarterback. Also don't know who's going to start a quarterback for Penn State either. So James Franklin said today that Sean Clifford is still receiving treatment and will be back when he can be back. Mm, I love that <laughs> shit. Yeah, Get it, Chris. I know. So uh, we also don't know who the backup would be or the future starter because uh, was it Taquan Robinson who filled in for Clifford when he got injured two weeks ago, didn't play very well. So now there's also a competition for that spot. So I'll be like Molly's favorite, like annoying reporter game day. Franklin channel your inner McGrath yes. this weekend. Who's gonna I love that stuff. But Chris, I'm warning you, James Franklin will lie to you. So <laughs> yes. he, just, he will lie to you. Pre-game. He's a so sneaky you need- one. He's a sneaky one. You need to stay on top of him. You've got to watch the quarterback, see who's getting snaps, obviously, from the starting center. But also, like, right before kickoff, you're going to have to run up to him and be like, who's your quarterback? Because shake him. He'll lie to you. You know what I'm going to do? Tell me! I'm going to go to Happy Valley early and, like, and get on top of a building somewhere and use my binoculars to see who's taking first-team reps like the OU Daily Newspaper. Yeah, you that'll go over well. <laughs> ask if you can go to ask if you can go to their Friday walkthrough. That's true. Something tells me that just uh, probably not. <laughs> a, a, a previous crew who covered them this year was able to go, so okay. you can use that. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. just ask if ask if you can go just to observe and size people up in person, and then just yeah. stalk Clifford the entire time. Mom, just make sure you go. leave time to go to the creamery because yeah. I've been to Penn state twice and I still have not been. So <gasps> go get some ice cream for me for sure. Um, all right, let's get to Cole because we have mustard bottles and golf balls and all sorts of craziness to discuss. Uh, not the, the scene people <laughs> wanted to see at Tennessee when the reception for Lane Kiffin. And I can't wait to hear uh, from Cole about all of that. So let's get to that interview. All right, let's get now to Cole Kubliak. So excited to have him on the pod. I think he's best known for having the best hair on the SEC Network crime crew. <laughs> Thanks for being with us, Coleman. You had uh, you had quite the game this past weekend. Got a little bit of attention for, I guess, probably all the wrong reasons. You had the Ole Miss-Tennessee game. Um, let's start there, and I want to go to the beginning in that pregame interview with Lane. Um, give me a sense going into it. Were you like thinking you're going to talk about the atmosphere and the hostility right out the gate there? Or was that something that you went, went to just given what was going on around you? Um, I don't know what, how you guys are with, with pregame interviews, especially when you get one like that, because usually it's, it's a pregame hit and we're going to give it information that we have, or, you know, we've kind of changed ours a little bit, Tom and Jordan and I this year to, we just kind of more talk about our feelings, our thoughts of the game. 
And it's not, hey, let's build a graphic for this or let's have these numbers for this. It's just, what are we looking for today? And to just try to go a little bit more, you know, sort of baseline common sense of what the game's going to be. But when you have an opportunity to do an interview like that, it's it's definitely different. And with Lane, it's even more different. And then <laughs> we know what happened with Jamie a couple of weeks ago uh, before the Alabama game. So it it's, you know, there's now an expectation, I guess. But I felt like the whole, hey, you're coming back to Knoxville uh, for the first time as a head coach. I mean, he's been back as a coordinator, so I, I kind of didn't really want to go there. And I, I just I like to try to get interesting answers from guys. And so it's not that I necessarily you know want them to say something that's not relevant to the game, but I watched him come out for warmups, and I watched him wave to the crowd, and I heard how they were booing him, and it was pretty loud, and it was obvious. And so I just kind of wondered – you know, when was the last time that he has been in an environment like this? I was kind of thinking that. And so because he's, you know, he he plays his role. He knows that he pokes and prods and right. out of that via social media. So I do think there's an enjoyment that he gets from it. But I just kind of wanted to know, like, what does Lane Kiffin do when he comes out and things are like that to sort of level things out and calm things down and stay even keeled? So that's kind of why I decided to go with it. I didn't make that decision until, I don't know, 10, 10, eight minutes before kick. When we rehearsed, I, I didn't know what my first question was going to be, which that, that actually happens to me a lot. Yeah. I'm, I'm very much a fly by the seat of my pants individual. Um, it drives my wife crazy because I'm not very organized, which is even more crazy considering the amount of stuff that's going on. But I just I'm very much sort of in the moment what's happening now what makes the most sense at that moment. And so I get a lot of things that come to me really late. And as you guys know, the best information, and we can go watch every bit of film or get all the information or talk to all these people, the absolute best information comes on that field 30, 45 minutes before kick. Every single game, it never changes. So I try to always hold a few things for what I'm going to learn when I'm down there on the field talking to coaches and walking around, talking to people with programs that I know. So you've been to Neyland a bunch, and but this was different. I mean, they had the orange LED lighting mm-hmm. before it got um, really ridiculous. When you're sitting there and they run through the tee, I mean, where does that rank on one of the loudest kind of most exciting uh, atmospheres you've been in? Well, I'll start with this, Chris. I, I played at Neyland in 1999, which for you know and a lot of people know those that don't follow Tennessee don't know was the year after they won a national championship mm-hmm. so we that place was what it was supposed to be I mean they were obviously into it stadium full and we throw a pick six on our first offensive play of the game and it's still to this day it's not even really close and I went to overtime at Baton Rouge at night it's the loudest stadium I've ever been in and I thought Saturday night was was very close it was like you like you said, I didn't know they were doing the new stuff with the night game and, you know, the spotlight that came down on the middle of the tee and then the, the ribbon around the upper deck mm-hmm. all went orange. Then the fireworks. I mean, it was it was awesome. It was badass. And, and I, yeah. I, I walked by Al Wilson and he stopped me and he said, this is the way it's supposed to be. And I was like, there is no doubt because that is one of the cathedrals of college football. And I thought, well, first off, there was reason for Tennessee fans to be that. And there was a, there was a reason to be excited and to get, 
to get back in there and fill it up. And then you check her kneeling on top of that with all that new stuff you talked about of what it already has and what already exists. It was awesome. It was, it was, I, I was blown away. I was hoping it would be that good. We knew it was a sellout. You, we always hear sellout. And then how many people show up? We don't really know, but it was, it was as close to what Neyland stadium is supposed to be as I've ever seen. And I loved it. I thought it was awesome. It got loud. It got really loud multiple times. I know Ole Miss had, had trouble communicating and they do communicate a lot at the line of scrimmage. So that that's what it is. That's what it should be. And I thought it was cool that they were back to that. And unfortunately for 20 minutes late, you know, that's what a lot of people are going to take away. But yeah. my biggest takeaway will still be Chris, that Neyland stadium was back and that should put some teams on notice for the near future, that it will not be an easy task to go play there. Do you think that is a product of Josh Heupel and what he's doing? Like, what do you think has allowed Tennessee to kind of get back and, and get back to being the Neyland stadium, you know, that it was decades ago that, like you said, is this cathedral in college football. I mean, there aren't a lot of venues that have the capacity that it does. It had, it's always had incredible, it's almost like potential, right? Cause it was there and then it came right. back down and you always knew what it could be. It was like the sleeping giant. Is this the Heupel effect? Like what, what do you think has changed in Tennessee for the better? Well, I think the first part, Allison, is, is kind of like what you said, is that the, the dip did happen. And, and so when your fan base suffers through that, you're always super anxious to get just a little bit of that back. We saw that with the College World Series. I mean, Tennessee fans went all in and were just completely bananas about what Tony Vitello's team did. And that showed you sort of the power of that fan base and just that they were super hungry to get something back in there with some kind of success. We've seen a little bit with Rick Barnes, with what basketball has done. We obviously know what women's hoops means, but I think Tennessee football fans and fans that attend football games, they've just been waiting for something. Give me a reason to get in there, make it loud, make it fun, experience it again. And because of that, it sort of amplified it. Well, then in comes Josh, who a lot of Tennessee fans probably just didn't even know about. And then probably viewed as the third, fourth, fifth choice, whatever it was, and said, well, this either isn't going to work or it's going to take multiple years to work, especially when you saw what happened to the roster. So the expectations just continued to sort of flatten. And then all of a sudden you win a couple of games, your offense is scoring points, you're moving the ball, you had to make a quarterback change. That's usually a negative. It ends up being a real positive for Tennessee. Hendon Hooker's been great this year. So I think all those things started trending up. Well, then guess who's coming to town? the guy that was your head coach for a year that decided to bail on you. And so, you know, you also get to go boo him on top of all that other stuff. So a little bit of a perfect storm, but also I just think Tennessee fans are so hungry to have that place back and to have their team back being competitive and relevant as far as SEC football is concerned, that that probably is what, what was most responsible. I feel like I can attest to this a little bit as someone who spent seven years there married to a Tennessee fan as someone who stood outside uh, on January 8th when they were burning couches when Lane Kiffin left. I mean, just like the, the hostility of, you know, that his name brings to that town. But on top of it, like there has been for a while, like this apprehension of Tennessee fans, even my husband, like, am I going to get into it this year? Like, Year after year, it's just like, ugh. And so those back-to-back wins where the offense was dominating, it was like that game was like, okay, now we're all in. Um, And they were all in for the whole time and all in on um, probably some alcohol too all day because then 
shit hit the fan um, and shit hit the, the field too. When all that went down, <laughs> for those that, that didn't see it, you know, golf balls, mustard bottles, vape pens, dip cans. What, like, what was the first thing you remember that you're like, whoa, what was that? Uh, it was probably, it was a, it was a, a water bottle first. And then the first thing that really caught me off guard was the vape pen. And I don't know what you even call it. Cause it's not like the, it's not like the one that looks like a, like a, like a cigar, whatever, like the ones that had, like, it's like a rectangle shape. I don't even know if those are called pins, canisters, <laughs> uh, administers. I don't know what they call those things, but uh, I'm not a vapor, but the, I, when I saw one of those things land, like almost out to the numbers, I was like, what are we doing? And then that's when I think just it began to rain everything, multiple water bottles, beer cans, golf ball, um, the mustard bottle. And it just, you know, it's, it's, here's the thing. It was mostly from the student section, which you guys know. Uh, I thought it was hilarious first and foremost, how the student section was so strongly booing Lane when he came in. I just kept thinking about, I was talking to Lane on the field before. And I said, do you think that most of these people even know why they don't like you? And he just <laughs> laughed and he's like, probably not. But he's like, but I think most people just have learned that, that that's what they're supposed to do. Right. And so it was, it was mostly, years ago. right. Right. Yeah. And it was, it was concentrated from the student section. I didn't see anything from any other part of the stadium. And I, I, I put myself back then. And I'm when I was 18, 20 years old in the stands, had probably been drinking all day and I see three or four other people do it. Like we're probably all going to get into it. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it got going. And it was just one after another. Um, and then like, was it dangerous? I, I, I wasn't fearing for my life. I didn't think I was going to get hurt. Did I want to get hit by a, a three quarter full Aquafina bottle from 30 rows up? Not really. That might not just have Aquafina in it. Yeah. I, I mean, I didn't, I, I, I didn't, did I want to get hit by a golf ball? No. But, you know, the comment that I think a lot of Tennessee fans are frustrated with me about that I said on the air was I wouldn't have my football team out here right now. And the genesis of that comment was I'm standing on the sideline and I'm 10 yards away from fans. And I see a lot of their reactions and what they're voicing and how they're saying it. And my my mind immediately went to what are one of these players going to do if they locate the person that threw something and it hits them? And are we going to be able to manage that reaction? You know, what if it happens to multiple guys? The mouse at the palace. I mean, like that's what ensued. I mean, someone threw a water bottle. Yep. And, and so that, be, so, that, yeah. be, that was my sort of reasoning for saying that. I didn't think an old, I didn't think John Rice Plumley was going to get sent to the hospital or, you know, that Matt Corral was going to be, knocked out to where he couldn't finish the season because of a Michelob Ultra can. Like, that's not real. That wasn't what I was trying to say. Maybe a butt-headed can, but not a real, Ultra. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> what, what appeared to be ensuing felt like it had the opportunity to escalate, and I right. didn't want to see that. I didn't want to see that for the league. I didn't want to see that for Tennessee or Ole Miss. I didn't want to see it for college football. So Tennessee fans are big mad at me, a portion of them for, I guess, saying that I wouldn't have my team out there, but I'll stand by it. I wouldn't have wanted my team out there. And I give Lane credit. I talked to him twice during that entire deal. And he said, I just want to finish the game. We're trying to play. We're trying to get this thing done. And we didn't get that on air, but that's what he told me two different times. So he wasn't looking for a forfeit or he wasn't looking to try to get his team to the locker room. He wanted to actually play the game. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what was going on while that was happening.
Colt, Tennessee fans are mad at me too for saying what, what happened was embarrassing. And that doesn't have to, you know, that doesn't mean every person in that stadium, but you know, they get it. It's, it's a fan base that also gets offended easily. At least you're probably still out on the radio. <laughs> no. Yeah, I was gonna say they're mad at everybody, Cole. You definitely are not alone. And I think what kind of really like triggered such a response from people watching the game was just the obscurity of the items and this picture of Lane Kiffin holding a golf ball and a, a bottle of mustard. Like what these items are doing at a college football game is just bizarre in and of themselves. And then the fact that it like ends up on the field. I mean, it was look, it wasn't a, a high point at all for Tennessee, but I mean. They've gotten plenty of criticism for it and they all know it. And I thought you handled it it really well because um, that's that's like a weird, bizarre situation to be in. And I think Kiffin handled it well, especially on his exit. He mm-hmm. owed Al Beckham Jr. that water bottle. Yeah. Like I had to the first clip I saw of it, I couldn't see the full trajectory of it. And it just like disappeared. I'm like, wait, did he catch that or did that go behind one of the troopers? Like Kiffin's got some hands on him. Yeah. I was actually I- I thought it would be worse when they left. And yeah. that was that was another concern of mine. And, and it ended up not being that bad when, when Ole Miss went off the field. So, and listen, were there a couple of Ole Miss players that were instigating, antagonizing fans? Of course there were. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, you know, some of it works a little bit both ways, but you're not going to be able to, whether it's officiating, the score of the game, what a head coach did, said, or what a player's doing on the field. You, you can't defend everything that happened because you have to be a grown-up and be an adult and act accordingly. And that was not acting accordingly by trashing your field and delaying a football game for 20 minutes. I, I was actually shocked because um, I want to get into your post-game interview with Lane. I thought they would have rushed him off the field just because mm-hmm. like what you said, like I expected once they lost and the game was over for it to continue. Right. So I was shocked. Like, d- take me first of all, like, were you surprised that he stayed out there? And then we get really nerdy on this podcast about like going through interviews. Like how did you decide when you, you know, there's the win, but then there's the delay and the atmosphere. So take me through all of that in the interview. Well, also keep in mind, Chris, and you've experienced this multiple times as Allison has, and it's, it's the part of this whole thing. That's super bananas is that Tennessee's on defense. And if you look at the, you look at what they have with three timeouts, if they get three stops and force mm-hmm. a punt, they're going to have about 50 seconds left with an offense that goes really fast against a defense that gives up yards to everybody that they play in bunches. So all of a sudden, I've been talking to Kyle Campbell, who you guys know, the SID at Ole Miss, and he's he's saying, yeah, we can do that. At first, we were going to, we were going to get Lane and Corral, and then when things started going, it was kind of like, I think we're just going to get Matt out of here. I don't think we're going to save him. I put up no fight to that. Totally understood it. And I said, is Lane going to stay? Should we get that? He said, if you come out, get him right after and get him at midfield, like we're not coming towards Mm -hmm. the sideline or going towards the end zone. We need to get him right there. And then, you know, a couple of questions, we should be good. And I was like, cool. I think we can make that work. Well, then all of a sudden Tennessee's in scoring position. So I, I all of a sudden have to think I might be going over there to get Josh Heupel which I hadn't talked to Bill Martin about it because I had been on the other sideline. So that would have been even more chaos if I would have had to switch. So then I'm starting to think, okay, where's my cameraman? What are we going to do if we're getting hypo? Where are we going to get hypo? I'm trying to text Bill Martin. You guys know 104,000. You're not getting text messages through to anybody. (laughs) So, you know, that became even a little bit more confusing. 
But I knew I just I knew I wanted to get his reaction to how he was feeling with everything. Um, obviously, the delay, winning the game, coming back, the way his quarterback performed. I knew they didn't go into the game thinking, oh, we're going to run Matt Corral 22 times. If anything, in our meetings with him, he said he used a great analogy saying, you know, I, I, I talked to Matt about when he runs, it's like driving a car. You got to put your seatbelt on. And if you don't, mm. you're going to get hurt. And when he doesn't slide, that's essentially not having his seatbelt on. That's why I asked the question post game of we might want to talk to Matt the next step from seatbelt to like airbag of he really needs to take more precaution. And so it was his first answer was really interesting. Just it was relief when I asked him how he felt and like everything going through his mind right now. He's like, I'm just relieved that we won the game. I'm, I'm relieved that we got to finish the game and, you know, really relieved that that everybody's safe and we're good to go. So. That was that was sort of the process of of getting that interview late, how it happened, and everything that we were sort of dealing with. Thankfully, we had a twenty minute delay to to talk about what we were going to do and be able to figure all that out. Keeping it nerdy here on the pod because um, that's what we like to do. Give me a sense. So, I think one of the things that you, Tom, and Jordan do so well is is the integration between the three of you. The connectivity within the broadcast. I think you're like, I'd say you and Lugs are the two guys that have really mastered this analyst slash reporter role. Um, how do you think you guys got there? And was this something for you as a, as a broadcaster, did you have to kind of hone the reporting side more? I mean, you know, football, right? Like the analyst part, I would imagine sure. is a no brainer for you. You've been in the booth, you, you, you know, the game. So for you, what, what do you think the evolution was for you individually and as a broadcast that's allowed you guys to kind of get to the level you are right now, where you're just so seamlessly integrated within the broadcast and you can seamlessly transition from that analyst role into that reporter role within a game. Right. Yeah. It was, you know, they sent that graphic out early and uh, I think Luke's texted me and he's like, man, last of a dying breed because, you know, Rocky went up to the booth. He's calling games in the booth now. So I think Tom and I are the only two that are doing it right now. So where it looked like there was going to be more and more guys that were coming in to do it. Um, I never envisioned it. I never thought that being on the sideline would be a real thing uh, because I never really, I never sort of saw myself as a, re- a reporter or an interviewer. And I don't think I realized once I started doing it, how much my radio background would actually help mm. in talking to people and interviewing people a lot. And, and that has is something that has really come in handy. The way it went down, um, they assigned me the Mississippi State spring game going into Dax last season. And essentially, they just said, we're going to open your microphone, do it, do whatever you want. It's a spring game because Mullen was really cool. He's like, you can just follow me. I'm going to be behind the offense and we'll talk about plays. And he's like, you do whatever you want. I was like, well, if that's the case, we're going to like really go in. We're going to try. And so I like stuck by his side. I mean, I was pretty annoying to him that that game because I just wanted to do something that people hadn't done. And so I think after that game. Um, I got a call from one of our bosses and, and he's like, well, would you want to do that for a season? I was just like, I mean, I guess I don't, I don't know. I haven't done it. It was cool. I'm not going to be able to walk on the field with the coach and talk about the, what's happening, the plays, but sure. And so that's when I got my first actual crew that I was on. It was me, Tom and Andre. And it was, it was, it was a little bit tricky at first. The, the luxury that I had that I don't know if you guys were able to go through or not, but I got to go to Swatsky's course. I was with you. In Bristol. You were in my. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that, that thing, Chris, still 
I still think back to, I don't know where my notes are from it. And I really wish I had my notes because there are certain things that I would like to go refer back to, but that was massive for me Mm -hmm. and not so much all the details or the intricacies, but literally just the baseline fundamentals of how you should ask questions. Open neutral lean. I used to write it on top of my notepad before every game, like where I would keep my plays and not chart the game. And I would just write open neutral lean, like just keep, Mm -hmm. remember those three things. Yeah. Allison and I still talk about it. Micro and Mm -hmm. macro. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Most important, probably being open because you don't want to get yes or no, Mm -hmm. which a lot of questions that we hear, literally the coach could easily just say no. And they wouldn't be, you know, they're not being an asshole. It's just, you didn't ask the question to where they had to give you more than that. Yeah. I tell people all the time with these, because we have, we talk, obviously I do radio with Greg in Birmingham. We talk about Saban's pressers and how he loses his mind all the time. And every time I tell people, go listen to the questions. Because a lot of times it'll be coach uh, about secondary play. Or talk about. Talk about. Talk about. Of, there's, there's, a uh, talk about there's a lot of talk about, but it's just, they're not even questions sometimes. Yeah. I'm like, you're, you're ejecting your opinion and waiting for a response. I don't yeah. know what, what did you anticipate getting from that? So uh, that, that was really, really big for me. And it just, it helped me understand sort of a how and why of question asking, because it's not just something that, that popped up and came up. And I had the luxury of staying in one league for the most part that, that helps me build those relationships. I, I know, I feel like I know like if I went and did Iowa, Iowa State tomorrow, and I, I mean, I had Iowa State last year. I had, you know, Memphis, Arkansas State last year. I, I do different games occasionally, but I have to put a little bit more into that. I, I know these coaches. They, they know me. That helps a lot. So I feel like sometimes I can go different places with them and they have an understanding that I'm not full of shit or I'm not trying to just get them to say something dumb. But that also helps a lot. It's um. And I'll say that the lack of ego, and this is going to be really surprising for both of you guys. I know this. The lack of ego from Tom and Jordan during our broadcast is one thing that makes it able to work that way, especially from Tom's perspective. I know it's hard for people to believe, but he does push that aside occasionally. And wants occasionally. occasionally. <laughs> On air. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sharing what happens during commercials. Yeah. Um, and the demands that he has, I'm not going to, I'm not going to share his rider before games that he has to have in the booth, uh, when he's going to be doing a game, but I think it's, it's, we've gotten to where we want all of us to be involved. We know we all have different strengths. We know we can all add to the game and we all realize now that the more we do that, the better we are at that, the better our game's going to sound. And so it's, it took a little while to get there, but I look at it now as just, I have the best seat in the house. Yeah. And, and there are times that it was interesting because I asked Lane this the other day. I said, uh, I said, what do you watch during plays? I was like, what's the, what's the qualifier that you need when you're watching a play of we're going to run this next, or I want to see what this guy does so we can add this attachment to that play. And he kind of stepped back and he goes, man, that's interesting. I've never been asked that. And he said, I guess it's probably different for every play. I don't really know because I know what I want to watch. And oftentimes I don't have that vantage point or I can't necessarily, because when you're up, you see everything, which as a football player, that's normally what you would want to see. So you can see how everything's happening and who's doing what accordingly. But I still think being down there in the moment mm-hmm. is just, there's something about being next to it 
And there's feeling, a sense that yeah. it's different. It feels different. Absolutely. You yeah. guys you do. Can... Yeah, sorry. I, you guys do such a good job of not talking over each other. Like we just did here. Um, <laughs> but it's, I'm assuming your mic is open the whole time and you don't have the vantage of like being in the booth, knowing that like Jordan's about to say something. Right. How have you like, so how do you figure out how not to step on each other? Um, I think Jordan and I are very the same analytically in that we normally want to talk when we see something that where our antennas go up, that heightens our attention level. So for Jordan, that's going to either be a really good throw. It's going to be why a route combination worked. It's going to be a breakdown in coverage. For me, it's going to be more of a, a, a great block, somebody missing a block, why a play worked up front. And so I know, Chris, that if he's really has something to say, he's coming in right after the right after Tom's finished. And if he if there's a pause, then he's probably not coming in. And if he does and he comes in late, I know I still have time to be able to get in. And, and it, do, it actually does happen. It's funny you said that because twice in the Tennessee game, I apologize to Tom during breaks. He's like, why, why do you keep apologizing for that? He's like, it's going to happen. But I apologize because it drives me crazy because it doesn't happen very often. And it probably should happen a lot more, but it's, I have to be super calculated when I pick my spots. And I think I've just been with them both enough to know when they're probably laying out or when they don't have anything to say and when I can actually get something. And I will, I get strategic sometimes. If I know I want to go somewhere, I'll hit, I'll hit Billy and I'll say, tell Tom, I'm, I'm going to this after this play or tell Tom the next time somebody makes a play, I need to, I, I want to talk about it. I've got some stuff that I want to get into. And there's no one, and I've, I haven't worked with a ton of play-by-play guys, but our our director, Patty Mack, last year, who a lot of people would tell you is one of the best to ever do it, He, we were talking about Tom one night, and he said, I've never worked with anybody who can audible in-game as quickly as Tom Hart can. He said, I can tell him one little thing, and he will immediately change the conversation to exactly what I was talking about, seamlessly well, transition to it, and like, boom, get right into it. So I, I think that obviously helps us a little bit as well, where if he gets just a little something that, hey, Cole wants to talk about the left tackle, well, it's the next play or the next play or the next play, he still has that, and he can always say, yeah. Cole, Kenyon Green's dominating this game. Why is he having success? And then I don't have to risk stepping on somebody. We, just, we all are able to, to get what we want to get in whenever we can. He is very quick on his, on his, on his very. feet. Sorry as I'm yelling at my child during our podcast here. I thought I was on mute. We all um. live that life. That's why I didn't go home to do this. That's why I stayed at the office to do this. Smart man. I, I don't have that option. Um, we got into it earlier a little bit on the show with Molly about the Ed Ogeron firing at LSU. Uh, what was your reaction to that? And there's nobody more connected in, in the conference than you, Cole. Um, did you see it coming? Were you surprised at all? And um, what do you think that was ultimately a, a product of? Um, I did see it coming. Uh, I've, we've known for a couple of weeks that something was going to happen. We just didn't really know when or how. Uh, so not really surprised that he's not going to be LSU's head coach. I was very surprised at, at sort of how they did it. We don't see a sitting athletic director with a sitting head coach sit at a table together with paperwork in front of them and say, well, we're going to let you coach X more number of games and then you're done and you're not going to be our guy anymore. And oh, by the way, we're going to start looking for the other guy, which don't even be surprised if the next coach is announced 
before Ed Orgeron's coached his last game. I mean, I think that's very, very feasible, very possible. Um, I think the, I think a lot of things played into this. Um, I think the record and some of the losses played into it. Uh, I think the amount of departures the last two years, um, I think that there is a little bit of a problem inside that building right now where putting the uniform on and playing the game is not the most important thing to numerous guys and hasn't been for the last two years. And I don't really know whose fault that is, to be perfectly honest with you, because that's kind of college football right now. That's a little bit more of a college football problem. I just think it's been magnified there after what happened in 2019. But I appreciate the fact that he's going to be able to finish the season. I, I went through a coaching change and had a coach fired in the middle of the season. And the thing that I always hate when it happens is that I know those assistants all have one foot out the door. So immediately, practice gets cut in half. Your fundamental work gets cut in half. You're not watching as much film. The coaches aren't dialed in the way they need to be. And I don't blame any of those coaches for that. They have families and futures that they need to solidify and take care of. So they're doing what they have to do to survive. That's I, I get it. But now by allowing him to finish the season, I think that will bring a little more stability, hmm. a little more continuity just for the rest of this year, where some of those younger guys that are playing will get the development, they'll get the reps, they'll get the coaching that they deserve to hopefully help them better themselves and carry that in to next season as well. Um, is there some stuff off the field that played into it? Yeah, probably. Um, and I think the expectation there is, is extremely high right now. Listen, everybody in this part of the country is living unrealistic expectations. And for a while, I called it the Nick Saban-Urban Meyer effect. And then I called it the Nick Saban-Dabo Sweeney effect. Now I'm just going to call it the Nick Saban effect because everybody believes their program can be that. Yeah. There's only one of those. And we've seen other programs go up and kind of come back down. Only one has pretty much stayed up there for the last decade. And so you you just you can't it's not Burger King in college football. Like you can't just go into your athletic department and say, we want it this way. And it happens. You can't just go spend all the money and say, OK, let's go win all the games. It's just not the reality. So and I, I think, too, having a new administration, having a new athletic director, what do new ADs want to do? Hire their own coaches. Wrong guy. Yeah. Happens everywhere. So I think all those things probably played into that. Hey, real fast before we let we let you go. Do you have a candidate that you think uh, they'll go after? Candidates and and some of the maybe names are out there that you think wouldn't go after it. Cole yeah. probably already knows there's like a contract probably. been offered and secretly signed. <laughs> <laughs> He's saving it all for his own radio show. He's not going to drop it here. I think um, I think there's a great candidate that will not get it. And he's about 45 minutes away. That's Billy Napier at Louisiana Lafayette. Mm. He's already got his claws dug into Louisiana. He is a he is a culture guy. I think he understands how to build that entire building as opposed to just your team and your roster. I think he'd be able to put together an amazing staff. And I think he'd be able to he's proven he can recruit Louisiana. I just don't know if the I don't know if the LSU guard is going to allow hiring the head coach at Louisiana Lafayette. <laughs> um, right. The interesting part of this, and I'd be interested just to get you guys' opinion as well, is everything that I hear is blockbuster hire, splash hire, big name, headline name. Okay, how many of those are there? Like, how many names are there if you announce them tomorrow, 90% of the LSU fan base is going to be super pumped up for what's coming? And then when when you generate that list, then take away the guys that you know aren't coming. 
because Nick's not going. I don't think Dabo's going. Personally, I don't I don't think LSU's a good fit for him and his personality. And I'm not sure he's ready to leave Clemson. Uh Ryan Day's not leaving Ohio State, which I'm not even sure Ryan Day is that name yet. I think he's James, a great coach. James but- Franklin. I don't think so. Culture-wise, yeah. I, don't I think know. James is a good coach, but is, is are you going to uh, – like? let's just take the two Mississippi schools in this conference that I cover. They both made a move for, for that reason. And I think LSU is in a different spot. They don't have to go just hire a guy to generate energy. But both of those programs were on better footing than people believed at the time. At least that's my opinion. And you went out and you got the likes and the retweets and the articles and the name and lights and the billboard. And if it feels like it's working really well for one, mm-hmm. but it might not be working so well for the other. So and honestly, you're going to well, go that direction. Last, yeah. When's the last time going that direction worked? Honestly, Tom Herman at Texas, that didn't work out. But you look at Mario nope. Cristobal at Oregon. He wasn't this holy cow, big, sexy hire. That's worked out. So I, I don't know. I mean, Jimbo Fisher. I mean, yeah, TB, TBD, I guess. Right, right. Um, I would say trending I mean, in the right knocking direction. Knocking on the door, knocking on the door of the playoff last year. I mean, had a, yeah. had a great yeah. year last yeah, year. Yeah, I think that's been say. that's probably a good example of hiring someone that had big name. Um, well, he beat Alabama. And there's only what? Right, right. Uh, Hugh, Dabo, Jimbo, and Coach O for now can say that they did it. And the Gus active is coaches, yeah. Florida, so there's what five or six coaches that have even done it ever. So. Right. You know, it, I would agree with Chris that that is kind of working out. But if, if LSU went and got Jimbo, which I don't think he would leave, I wouldn't. Is that a better job? LSU. No, not a better job. Not right not the second. Job. In its to, in its totality, it's a better job. I mean, there's a reason that the last three coaches have won yeah. a national title, which is insane. I I need to text Felica and ask him has has any school had three consecutive coaches win a national championship? Because I don't feel like that's ever happened. So, I mean, that in and of itself, and especially in the eras in which they happen, which is recent, right. it's insane. So, in its totality, LSU is a better job. But right now, with what Jimbo has already built, I'm not leaving College Station. You for have all the right resources now. there. And then some. Yes. Yeah. And so- if, you, if you caught it, go back and listen to Jimbo. I think it was Monday when he, he did his whole rant about how he's not leaving. He dropped the ultimate humble brag that no one's caught. He said, I hunt here. I have ranches here. I have this and that. And I was like, hold on. That dude just said he has multiple ranches and no one ranches. That. Like plural. He's got ranches plural in Texas. That dude yeah. ain't going anywhere. He got a sweet contract. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cole, where can we uh where can we catch you this weekend? Where are you guys at? Actually back there with Jimbo. We'll be in College Station, South Carolina at Texas AM Saturday night at 6 30 on the SEC network. Get out on the ranches. The Come on, tell them to what, take you fishing. That should be my nation hit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we figure that out. You've been having Absolutely. some fun on nation this year. I appreciate you jumping off that uh, high dive, man. I don't know what we're going to do with that. It was, um, that was, that was pretty wild. I, I mean, it's one of those things where once you get up there, you, you have to do you it. You got to do it. It's like I couldn't do it. And we didn't think we were going to be able to do it for a while. The, so that's, that's their rec center. That's not like the, the swim and diving team's facility. It's like the student rec center, but it's it's set up for that, obviously. And so we get in there, and I had I had gone through all the people with the, the dive team and the SID, and all of a sudden the the rec center director comes over. We're getting ready to do it. He's like, "You guys can't go off the seven or the ten. Like you can't do it." And I was like, well, "We're not doing it off the five. 
because I'll get laughed out of there just for doing that. <laughs> we'll go shoot somewhere else. We're not doing this. And I mean, the shoot is live. And he's the, the guy that the student coach that was with us. He's like, let me go talk to him. And if you noticed when I jumped in and I never I had never heard of this before in my life. The guy comes back after they talk for about 10 minutes and he's like, you can do it, but you have to do it with bubbles. Bubbles. Yeah. To break the surface. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, How it feels you like even glass. Know what that was. I never even I heard used of to it. love diving. I used to be like, a during diver. the Olympics. Were you oh. a diver? Yeah. Did you know that, like, that? So you hit the water with so much force on a 10 meter that they don't allow you to even dive head first off of it until you're 12 or 13 because your wrists aren't fully developed. That's how, like, Yikes. impact it is. Glad I you thought know about that since now, going, not before. <laughs> I've, I thought about it since we're going back this week, like, do we do it again in advance? Like, do I go actually dive off of it this week? And I was like, you don't hurt yourself. Yeah, they they went through too many stories of seeing people hurt themselves. And I was like, that's that's probably not. The best go thing. rope some cattle, put on some cowboy boots. Like, <laughs> let's go all in on this Texas thing. Come on. They do, they do have an equestrian team yeah. here in College Station. So. There you go. All right, Cole. Well, thank you so much for the time. I know how busy you are. You are not just one of the great broadcasters in this business, but you're one of the, the great people. And I appreciate you, your hard work and your friendship and coming on this pod and uh, enjoy College Station this weekend. I appreciate you guys having me. I'm just bummed that my XFL partner wasn't able to be here with us. And we could she talk didn't, XFL she didn't want you to outshine her. Molly's like, Cole's coming on. Nope. Nope. I'm not doing it. No, she had, she had work and we all have busy schedules. Um, so Molly's sense of regards and sorry to miss you, but, uh, I'm figures. sure we'll connect soon. Figures, so. <laughs> those XFL, those XFL stories, man, those are going to be awesome. And we need a whole pot. Like, yeah, that. we do. We really do. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be was, next. It was wild. It was fun, but yeah, I, I enjoy being with you guys. I appreciate you having me. Thank, Thank you, Cole. Cole. Thank you guys for listening to the Sideline Pass podcast. Don't forget to download, rate, and review, and we will see you next week.